0: So, Jeremy, why do you think people undergo surgery?
1: I can tell you why I've gone sur- undergone <laughs> surgery. Uh,
0: Let's I, delve into all of your surgeries, Jeremy.
1: Yeah, we don't have enough of an episode for that. Uh, I think that the vast majority of the time, people generally would like to avoid surgery, but they're trying to, you know, something happens, and unfortunately, they need something, you know, fixed. I think that for whatever reason, something needs to be I don't know. I don't know a better way to say that. It feels like something's off and something needs to be put back together.
0: But I would totally agree. hundred percent. I mean, I think there's myriad specific indications for surgery, but in general, I think surgical interventions aim to right a wrong, you know? So maybe that wrong is that your appendix suddenly became acutely inflamed and caused you horrible pain and illness and it needs to come out. Um, maybe that wrong is that you were born with, palate defect and your folks wanted to make sure that you could eat and breathe okay so they had you know a surgeon fix that for you um probably one that we see a lot maybe your knee hurts all the time because you were genetically predisposed to developing osteoarthritis or you had some crazy injury you know playing lacrosse when you were a kid and now your cartilage wore away and it hurts all the time and maybe it's time to talk about putting in a new joint um and then maybe your assigned sex at birth or your assigned gender at birth doesn't fit your gender identity um, that's a, a, a wrong that we could potentially right. So ultimately, what's considered a valid, worthwhile indication for a surgical intervention is up to the recipient of that procedure. So utilizing an open and honest shared decision-making model, patients and surgeons rely on education, empathy, and informed consent to determine the most appropriate way to right the wrong. And these tenets apply to gender-affirming and gender-confirming care, including surgical interventions. So statistics on the number of transgender people vary widely, in part due to differing definitions of transgender. However, in general, transgender identity prevalence is often quoted worldwide under 1%, so anywhere between 0.1 and 0.6%. Transgender and gender diverse people, so the term lumped together is TGD people, um, experience a disproportionate burden of mental health problems compared to the general population. This has been shown in in, uh, a lot of data. Um, This is likely attributable to stigma and discrimination, economic marginalization, violence, and dysphoria associated with an incongruence between their gender identity and societal expectations based on their sex assigned at birth. And in many places, they are not legally protected from this discrimination. But thankfully, meaningful research exists to provide helpful data on the benefits of gender-affirming care and its health outcomes. So um, going into some of the data out there. The 2015 U.S. Transgender Survey, this is the N, the number of people, um, transgender and gender-diverse people, was over 27,000, almost 28,000 people. Um, And this showed that gender-affirming surgery was associated with lower risks of psychological distress, tobacco smoking, and suicidal ideation compared to people that did not undergo gender-affirming surgery. So I think we should learn more. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I think anybody listening to the podcast right now has heard the terms gender affirming surgery or something along the lines, uh, whether it be through the media or, or, or uh, other places. And I think even myself is, you know, very curious to learn more about even what that is. I think that mm-hmm. that's not necessarily the backbone of our education. I think um, just the actual concepts of what does that mean what, what, what actually goes on? There are doctors that treat this, and I don't think many people get the nitty gritty of the details. So just like when we've done episodes in the past on like Ozempic, where that is in the media all the time right now. But like, what is it? So I think I'm excited to learn more. This is an episode that I'm, I'm really interested to, to just be educated.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. So, yeah, so thankfully we have a wonderful expert guest in the field of gender affirming surgery to educate us today. So, I think we should go do that. Welcome to Your Doctor Friends, the show that teaches you to sniff out the garbage and answers
1: all the questions that you wish you could call or text your doctor friend.
0: My name's Julie Bruni.
1: And I'm Jeremy Allen, and we are two physicians who work at a nationally ranked practice and take care of some of the world's greatest athletes. We know that you have questions, and we want to help.
0: We want to be your doctor friends. All right, and we're back. I think we should introduce our extremely esteemed guest. Um, this is one of those guests that, again, like, is too cool to be on our show, but somehow this worked out in our favor. So I'm just going to go with it and just and just be grateful. So I want to welcome Dr. Lorenz Schechter. Um, Dr. Schechter is one of the U.S. foremost experts on transgender surgery. He has over 20 years of gender-affirming surgery experience. He is the medical director of the Gender Affirmation Surgery Program at Rush University Medical Center. Um, Since 2013, he's performed about 100 to 150 gender-affirming surgeries annually, um, which is about 85 to 90 percent of his patient population. Um, He offers a complete full spectrum of gender-affirming procedures. Um, He is board certified by the American Board of Plastic Surgery and is a member of many, many, many other academic societies. He is the president-elect of the American Society of Gender Surgeons, which is amazing. Um, He went to medical school, University of Chicago, and did his residency and fellowship at the University of Chicago as well. He helped to author the seventh edition of the Standards of Care um, and serves on the editorial board for two transgender medical journals. He's also the author of the first Surgical Atlas concerning surgical management of the transgender patient, as well as many, many peer-reviewed academic papers. Um, He also received the Illinois uh, State Bar Association Association Community Leadership Award for advocacy and support of LGBT issues. So means a lot when you can span the the medical and the legal field. That that's, uh, that, that says a lot about your character. So again, you're clearly too cool to be on our show. <laughs> and then we we imagine with all of the advanced degrees and leadership roles in academic societies, there's very little, if any, free wall space in your office. <laughs> I can imagine if that's that's probably true. So thanks for being with us today, Dr. Schechter.
2: Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to to be here and looking forward uh, to speaking with you both tonight.
0: So yeah, give us your, your origin story. I mean, that's whenever we have a, a guest as esteemed as you on the pod, we like to hear about how you got here.
2: Yeah, it, well, I uh, actually was first uh, exposed to gender affirming surgery back in medical school, so in the early to mid-90s. Now, We didn't call it gender-affirming surgery at the time, and of course, language has evolved uh, over over the years. Uh, You know, 30 years ago, it was sex change, sex reassignment, uh, surgery, and I was first exposed uh, as a medical student and then as a surgical resident. And what was, um, I I had uh, no real knowledge uh, about I can't even call it a field because uh, it really wasn't a field at the time uh, but I had uh, no real knowledge about transgender health or transgender medicine. I would think uh, that's probably true of of almost everyone uh, physician and, and non-physician. And I think what struck me at the time, you know going back now 30, 30 years if not, if not even more, was um, were really many of the, the challenges that people faced. You know, Back then, insurance certainly did not cover these procedures. Um, difficult to find hospitals uh, that would allow surgeons to perform the procedures. Uh, the healthcare environment wasn't a welcoming place and, and people would have to, many people, most people had to leave the country uh, to access medically necessary care. So it was really eye-opening uh, at, at the time. And really, in just meeting people, speaking with people, learning from people, um, you just recognize that that people need help. Uh, we're here as physicians and surgeons to help people uh, in their journey. And, and that was really the beginning. Uh, there was no field of gender-affirming surgery. So when I finished training and went into practice, it was just part of what I did like many other procedures. Um, we would care for people as we do uh, people with, with many different conditions, whether reconstructive, cosmetic, traumatic, oncologic, uh, birth related. Um, and, and, you know, I would say it wasn't until probably 2008, eight, nine, ten when, when there started to be changes, I think, in in society. Changes in insurance coverage. The internet came about, um, and I think one of the positives about the internet is it really created a lot of connectivity between people. And and so, what was very remarkable in the stories that we used to hear, everyone was very isolated. You know, there, there, everyone felt they were the only people with this particular lived experience. There would be very small kind of regional meetings. There used to be one in the Chicago suburbs. There was one in Kansas and, and a couple of these small meetings throughout the country where people would go largely community-driven social events to meet other people. And there would oftentimes be some handful of physicians talking about hormones or perhaps surgery. Um, and I think one of the positives about the internet is is sort of uh, people began to get connected. They realized not only within a particular geographic region in the US, but internationally that that they weren't alone. Um, You had shifts in societal attitudes, insurance companies began covering it with the Affordable Care Act. Um, And so it was sort of this confluence of events that I think really um, um, allowed people to feel more safe and comfortable accessing care, accessing the system, you had hospitals, insurance companies, big corporations, universities starting to recognize the importance of care and and beginning to be kind of evaluated uh, based on diversity. Um, and, and so I think it was all these events coming together, you know, maybe 12 years ago, 13 years ago, 14 years ago that started to, to really change change the field.
1: It's so interesting to be a part of it from like, just through the evolution, I think many of us, including myself, um, you know, I have maybe paid more attention to this field more recently for for the trends that you talked about. Um, I think just to start at the beginning, as far as you know maybe educating both Julie and myself and our listeners, like just define maybe what gender affirming surgery even means.
2: Sure. So our indication for surgery is is usually either gender incongruence, and or gender dysphoria. So uh, the condition where one's gender identity, their internal sense of who they know themselves to be, is not congruous with their anatomy. Um, The dysphoria relates to the stress, the distress, the suffering related to resulting from that incongruence. And our goals with surgery um, as, as one component um, uh, of an overall, uh, uh, I would say, treatment plan is, is to help align one's body with their identity. And, and you know, we don't work in a vacuum uh, by, by any means. We work with uh, colleagues across multiple disciplines, medical colleagues, physical therapists, pelvic floor physical therapists, social workers, behavioral health and mental health professionals, endocrinologists, family medicine. I mean, any any number of, of different people based upon the unique needs of, of each person. I think
0: sometimes to personalize this for you know, our listener experience um, when we've had other experts on, it's nice to be like, say a person walks into your office, Dr. Schechter, you know, walk us through what are what kind of what kind of workup would you be doing? What kind of questions would you be asking me? Like, what what is your approach to the person that walks in your office and says, "Okay, I need your help." Like, how would you sort of walk somebody through the experience?
2: Yeah, we're we're probably a little bit unique. You know, I think for many people, certainly historically, surgery was sort of the culmination of a life's Journey it was something that people had hoped for and, and oftentimes longed for. It was out of reach for many people because of expense, lack of uh, providers, uh, difficulty, and long wait times. Needing to travel, um, and so you know, historically, this was something that people oftentimes had had saved up for uh, extensively when insurance didn't cover it. Um, um, and, and really you know was representing the the, the culmination of their journey um, uh, the challenges that they had faced throughout their life whether personal struggles uh, uh, family related issues uh, and and so many people were were relieved now you know the good thing and the fortunate thing is we've increased access to care is you know we see a, a wide range of people wide range of ages Um uh, Some, not all, much of the financial burden has been eased uh, as insurance is covering now many of the procedures. And so when we see someone in the office, you know, most people uh, have had the opportunity to consider procedures. Um, For many people, it may be uh, they may be interested in a variety of procedures, and it begins with. Um, kind of setting the the stage as to how they want to proceed. There's no one kind of recipe or one right way to do it. So we try to meet people where they're at. Um, Important to listen, uh, to understand what people's goals are, what their expectations are, uh, what they hope to achieve from the procedure. And then it's up to very much in a uh, a mutual bi-directional way to, to speak with the patient and, and develop a plan that that meets their goals and their expectations
1: I think one of the things you said there that's so accurate and common just for any doctor's appointment, let alone the ones that, that you're experiencing, is the concept of uh, uh, having thought about it for a very long time. I mean, I think even when you're going to see a primary care for a physical, you still spend the few days before that physical thinking, what am I going to say to that doctor? So to think about you know, the length of time that, that, that people have probably spent before they even walk through your door, kind of thinking about this type of um, um, appointment or consultation, or frankly even the procedures. Um, and then the other thing that hit me was thinking that you you guys have your department now, the the gender uh, affirming surgery department, and just to think that there's a department, right? Like you can just like the person is thinking about this type of procedure or this type of information, and they and they can go and they it's a dropdown. There's like a department, right? It's not just like who even does the procedure. I just think that the access of that has to. I don't know, be pretty gratifying maybe on your end, but also just so great for the access for the patients.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, one of the things that's been interesting and rewarding for me, as we said earlier, is watching the evolution, just in, in the delivery of, of healthcare and medically necessary care, you know, going from a time where you couldn't find hospitals that would allow you to do the surgery to, as as you've said now, uh, creating a, a really a welcoming environment, um, uh, Visibility, uh, so people, you know, can feel again safe and affirmed uh, in in accessing care. Oftentimes, you know, by the nature of the procedures we do, uh, they can be uh, you know very personal topics, um, and, and so making people feel uh, comfortable uh, in that setting is very important.
1: The vast majority of elective surgeries have specific criteria people have to theoretically meet or maybe criteria that they should not meet to be eligible. Are there certain criteria that, that people have to meet either before they see you or or during the appointment?
2: Yeah. And, and so again, a, a good question. It, it's not as if there's um, necessarily a recipe for how people have to do it. There's guidelines. Uh, The guidelines are referred to as the standards of care. Those are guidelines that are that have been developed by WPATH, World Professional Association for Transgender Health. I have the privilege of serving on the executive committee of that organization and was the co-lead author for this most recent edition, uh, version eight that was released back in in September of 2022. Uh, the first version uh, of the standards of care was released back in 1979, and and just to go wow. back for one moment, I think it's important to recognize, while the field has gotten a lot of media attention, certainly recently, at least in the modern era, surgery has been done for hundred you know hundred years, um, so it's it's not new. Um, the uh, you know attention it receives is. is um, you know, obviously has, has increased over the last 10, five, 10 years or so, uh, but, it, but it's not new. And, and one of the things that I tried to do throughout my career is really bring, bring the field into the mainstream of, of, of medicine, have it treated and considered and evaluated as we do for any other field. Um, and, and so in terms of sort of guidelines, We uh, practice in accordance with those guidelines. Those guidelines are individualized. They're flexible. They're designed as we do with um, all of medicine, really individualized care uh, based on the person sitting in front of us and and what their needs are, their their medical history, their surgical history, and their goals. And, And so part of, I think, the intent of those guidelines is to work in a multidisciplinary way. And so because this the, the surgery does affect and impact multiple domains in someone's life, obviously personally, physically, anatomically, uh, can affect family relationships, romantic relationships, marital relationships, um, professional relationships. It's important that people not only understand the, the technical aspects, you know, the, the usual things that we speak about in surgery and, you know risks of surgery, benefits of surgery, but how is surgery going to impact you? And and I think in in discussing a procedure with someone and really engaging in that shared decision-making approach, it's encouraging people to consider, you know, how is surgery going to impact them? You know, people arrive at different decisions and different conclusions, uh, you know, based upon their own Their own calculus you know how they add things up uh, and consider things timing you know it wasn't uncommon many years ago because of the discrimination and stigma that you know people would often wait until their parents passed away you know they just couldn't bring their bring it uh bring themselves to let their parents know so it wasn't uncommon that we would hear stories of individuals undergoing surgery at, at older ages not only because of the financial requirements of surgery at the time, but also they, you know, they waited for their parents to pass. Um, And I think, you know, some of those, fortunately, some of many of those barriers have have certainly been reduced, not eliminated, but, but reduced. And so I think helping people understand the magnitude of the surgery, uh, you know, Uh, any number of things. Many people travel. We see a number of people from all over the country as well as internationally. Um, Traveling in and of itself isn't easy these days and and traveling after surgery is certainly not easy. Um, Time off of work. Uh, Who's going to help you after surgery? So we have a social worker and a navigator in our office who help work with people to develop specific aftercare plans, which is incredibly important. We have a pelvic floor physical therapist who meets with people before surgery and works individually with people after surgery because of the nature of what we do. Uh, Pelvic floor physical therapy plays a very important role. Uh, So she works with people both before and after surgery. Um, Understanding, again, goals. Those may be not only physical goals, they may be sexual function and sexual goals. we have relationships with sex counselors, sex therapists, uh, reproductive goals, fertility considerations. Um, so, you know, any number of considerations uh, that we discuss at the time of, of consultation.
0: That's wonderful. Great. Taking that multidisciplinary approach, I think, is so important, and it's so great to see it happening in, in action and, and seeing, you know, having you describe how it, what it looks like to a patient who's seeking this kind of care. Um, I know, you know, on this uh, on this podcast, we like to talk about barriers to care and how we can break down those barriers. And clearly just having this multidisciplinary approach and, you know, creating um, visibility uh, and and creating the access to this really high quality care is is extremely important to breaking down barriers. You know, going back to the to the vignette uh, as we opened up the episode of someone who's getting a knee replacement, like folks that smoke have a higher risk of you know, wound healing problems and such like that after surgery. Are there particular risk factors that um, you would counsel patients on? I know that could be a broad question because I know you do many different types of procedures, but in general, do you have an answer to that very long-winded question? <laughs> yeah.
2: You know, I think like in orthopedics and transplant and bariatrics, you know, the concept of prehabilitation um, is really important there are many factors there's medical conditions uh there um, there may be social conditions and social determinants of health that that impact people's ability to perform aftercare so transport you know financial transportation uh safe housing food privacy confidential you know uh uh, do you have a safe space at work if you have to go back to work, or you can do your dilation and, and so on? So, um, anxiety, depression, pain—you um, know—many of the things that you see in other fields, and and I think that's the important thing to realize: where um, um, much like other fields, you know, we we consider and look at these other factors. So, um, if there are things that need to be optimized or can be optimized, certainly smoking cessation, um, looking for substance use. Um, you know, Our social worker and navigator do a pre, preoperative assessment to look at who's going to help at home, living, transportation, You know, are, are all of those things in place? Um, I think you know, those were some of the items that were probably underappreciated many years ago, especially for people who, who travel um and part of what we've done in the most recent standards of care these clinical guidelines is be very um uh intentional about the need to uh have an aftercare plan developed we send people you know back home uh far away from chicago coordinating with their primary care team uh for any ongoing needs so i think you know, the best way to uh, not have problems is to prevent them and, and try to screen for for these things. You know, we see all the usual things in medicine, diabetes and, and obesity and smoking and heart conditions and, and so forth. And, you know, we, we of course, uh, do all we can to, and work with our medical colleagues to medically optimize people. But I think it's also the social determinants uh, of health uh, that, that we recognize play a role as well.
1: That's so huge. We, 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 we highlight those like social that. determinants of health quite a bit on, on the show, and it comes up almost in every expert that we have on. So anytime it comes back up, it just reiterates how much those factors play a role um, in, in outcomes and, and, and medicine. Um, I would love for you to maybe talk about some of the more common procedures that you actually do. Maybe like what are the common things that people generally are coming to the office and, and electing to have done?
2: Yeah. So, so we, um, at, at Rush at the Affirm surgery program, we care for, uh, uh, the whole body. So that would be face, chest, breast, body, and, and genitalia. Um, so my areas of focus are to me in chest and breast surgery, as well as genital surgery and genital urinary surgery. Um, again, while our, um, Majority of our work is in the gender affirmation space. We also care for people with congenital differences, uh, uh, oncologic reconstruction, traumatic. And and so many of these principles uh, or or many of the principles from oncologic reconstruction Mm -hmm. or congenital reconstruction, traumatic reconstruction, you know, we've used uh, and and modified as needed for the uh, gender affirming surgeries. So most of what I do is either mastectomy, breast augmentation, um, vaginoplasty, phalloplasty, or or what we call metoidioplasty, which refers to lengthening of the hormonally hypertrophied uh, clitoris. And then our colleagues also perform facial feminization, facial masculinization, body contouring.
1: Do people involve other physicians in the care as well? Like, do they, if they come and see you, they have to have a referral to come see you or they come and work with their primary care doctor or anything like that?
2: Yeah, so so people are either, probably most people are, are self-referred. Um, but of course, we have referrals from um, uh, all sorts of physicians, primary care, surgeons, um, mental health, behavioral health professionals, uh, allied health professionals, NPs, PAs, etc. Um, and as I said, in, in our office or real time, we have our pelvic floor physical therapist, our social worker, our navigator, our coordinator, um, our nurse. And then prior to surgery, uh, we obtain uh, assessments before surgery. And those are assessments that are typically conducted uh, by either primary care professionals and or mental or behavioral health professionals. Uh, we review those as assessments, again, uh, to ensure that the relevant issues have been covered. If there's anything, you know, this myself as the surgeon, I may meet people once, sometimes twice, uh, occasionally a little bit more before surgery, but it's usually the primary care person, the mental and behavioral health professional, a therapist who's had a much longer, uh, more robust relationship with the person so we look to them also for information we work with them to help ensure that as we said earlier the patient is considered uh, the person's considered um, you know a wide variety of topics to make sure that they're prepared so that they've uh, heard heard things uh, you know probably by a couple different people in a couple different ways you know everybody absorbs their information a little bit differently uh, so in addition to the decision aids that we have in the office, photographs, written information, uh, discussion with me and the pelvic floor team and and so on. You know, hearing hearing different considerations from people with expertise in other areas, therapists, mental health, behavioral health, primary care, endocrine, you know, I think uh, also helps guide people in terms of their decision-making, whether it's timing, type of procedure, and we learn information too. You know, we we, we want to make sure that that what you know what we're hearing is is sort of consistent with with what the person is saying. Um, if people have difficulty communicating, mm-hmm. um, uh, not comfortable communicating, sometimes it's easier to speak to people that they've had long-term relationships with and they've developed that comfort over many you know many years. So we're always looking to to glean additional information and learn learn additional things from from their team and you know again, that may be people out of state, out of country.
0: Dr. Schechter, can you debunk some of the common myths or misinformation out there about gender affirming surgery? Um, a couple that I just came across through just looking through things online you know, transgender need, transgender people need therapy, not surgery. What would you, yeah. how would, would you be your response to that?
2: Yeah. And, and so again, there's no right one, one way to care for people. Uh, it's a matter of what's right for that, that person. And and that's just true of medicine in general, regardless of the condition, right? uh if a cisgender woman has breast cancer there may be mastectomy lumpectomy radiation chemotherapy you know so there's never or rarely a one-size-fits-all approach Um, not every individual uh, of trans experience wants surgery or wants every procedure um or or undergoes every procedure and that may be for multiple multiple reasons that may be for personal reasons Professional reasons, financial reasons. Uh, and so um, we have to really meet and speak with a person and, and learn what their goals are. Um, how are they able to achieve really lasting comfort and, and what's needed? Um, you know, we're typically not the first visit uh, for, for somebody. I, you know, by the time they've seen us, they've typically been working with other people to some degree, whether it's primary care or endocrinologist, perhaps for hormones. Uh, perhaps they've been uh, in therapy or in counseling. Um, and and so, you know, the answer is it It depends on the person. It depends what their goals are. Um, and it depends on, on what they choose after listening to a discussion of the risks and benefits. So someone of trans experience may say, you know, yeah, I'd like to have surgery, but I'm I'm nervous about you know the particular risks of surgery, and and therefore I'm not going to do it. And and so, therapy doesn't make someone not be trans. Um, may help guide decision making as to what's right or the timing or or what have you. Uh, um, uh, and and so we're trying to identify people who would who would benefit from the procedure.
1: You talking about that made me think. I'm sure that. You know, every every surgery or every procedure, generally speaking, is tracked in some form or fashion for outcomes or complications or you know, the the standard stuff. I'm sure you want to know what the infection rate is. But I feel, you know, in like in orthopedic surgery, function is important. People want to know how much they're gonna be able to run afterward or something like that. So I would imagine also there's a lot of factors outside of just like infection rates and stuff that that the literature follows in in, in Uh, Gender affirmation surgery. Is there some relevant data that you think is important to maybe communicate to our audience about some of the things that you guys have seen with this surgery and how it's affected people outside of just you know they they did well and they healed.
2: Yeah, so I think um, important to recognize that it's a heterogeneous group of people, and um, and so when you ask the question, the appropriate question about function, I would say is it it really depends. On what the person's goals are, and one of the things we've we've been doing at at Rush and with uh, some of our research team, which includes students and residents, is looking at you know what our goals and what our expectations, and you know they may vary again quite quite widely. Um, you know, certainly if you're talking about vaginoplasty, for example. Um, you know, people have different goals with what they hope or with what they want to achieve from the procedure with uh, how they uh, anticipate romantic relationships, if if at all, um, you know, following the procedure. So, again, one of the things that we included intentionally in in the updated standards is version eight is tracking outcomes. So we track, you know, vari- we track outcomes a variety of ways. We have all the standard um uh, tracking that we do through through the hospital uh, mechanisms and so forth, and through the Red Caps data and and, and database and so forth. Um, if you look at the literature again, it's procedure specific, depending on, on in terms of specific complications. And you know, I think most of the and, and really, you know, what we talk about in surgery every day are surgical things. Things like risk of any surgery, bleeding, infection, wound disruptions, um, uh, you know, th- things of that nature. Most of those, uh, so un- pretty uncommon for procedures like mastectomy and breast augmentation. For the genital procedures, which are, of course, of, of higher degrees of complexity, um, most in the area, for example, of vaginoplasty are either self limited or treated. Um, uh, with local care and, and, and so on. Um, phalloplasty, probably our most involved procedure, um, complication rates there are higher in terms of um, urinary uh, issues um, and and those are the discussions that we have with people, uh, very very forthright discussions that we have with people in, in the office and that helps guide their decision making and their choice as to what, Uh, what procedure, if any, uh, to undergo.
1: One of the myths that, uh, you know, Julie uh, wrote down here that's great and leads into maybe from what you were just saying there is like, what if people regret the decision? Doesn't, you know, don't people regret this? And so are you guys following satisfaction scores or like, how do do you, how do we know that answer?
2: Yeah, I, I think that's a really important question. And you know, I like to answer the question of, of quote, regret like this. So I think we have to be specific about what we're talking about. If you look in the medical literature and you look at medical decision-making and regret regarding medical decision-making, um, you probably see it in your own field of orthopedics, right? Uh, if you've had a knees, you know, if you have a total knee and you have an infection and you get an effusion, a uh, fusion or something, you know, or you have an antibiotic spacer, you probably regret uh, having had that surgery. doesn't mean you didn't need it, um, you know, so, so regret in medical decision-making is, is higher, far higher in other fields because of the rigorous screening processes that we go through. And if you look at the topic of regret and you look at other fields, treatment for breast cancer, orthopedic surgery, prostate surgery, You know, regret is often related to lack of information or, or, um, you know, what people feel incomplete information. And I think that's one of the things that we're very intentional about uh, is trying to make sure that people are well informed uh, before, you know, before surgery. And, And regret also imply, I think, means that you would have made another decision. So, So sure, do people have, um, you know, if you have a complication, is it more likely that you may experience regret? Yes. That doesn't mean you're not who you are. It doesn't mean you regret your identity. Maybe it means, okay, well, you know, that the procedure may, you know, I, I had second thoughts about the procedure. I am who I am. So it's got nothing to do with my identity. Regret related to to one's identity or or experiencing regret really, you know is extremely extremely low because you know under 1% because of all uh these discussions that we have prior prior to surgery you know these these processes that we're talking about are are really a higher bar than we have for many other uh you know many other fields uh people have often considered it for for many many years People have to have a preoperative assessment not only by me but but by others, whether primary care, or mental health, or behavioral health. They meet with us in the office, so there are you know multiple touch points along you know along the way. Now, also, people may look back and say, um, in the rare circumstances, very rare circumstances, where they may request a surgical reversal or, or some form of, of detransition, so to speak, they may not experience regret, right? That was part of their journey. That was the decision, the correct decision for them at the time. Um, You know, it is conceivable that, that life does change as we move on and, and goals change. And, and, and so, you know, I often compare it in plastic surgery, to our field of breast reconstruction. And I asked my colleagues who specialize in breast reconstruction, do you ever have cisgender women who want their breast implants out? You know, do you call that regret, right? Do you ever, do you, do you say, uh, you know, you have patients who want fat grafting to their breasts or implants out and autologous reconstruction, you know, do you term that regret? And so I think unless we're going to have some consistency across the field of medicine, you know, if you've had... Prostate surgery, and you've you're incontinent, or you have erectile dysfunction. You may regret having had it. Doesn't mean you didn't have prostate cancer or need the surgery. And maybe you would have elected radiation. You know, these are the informed consent discussions and the shared decision making uh, discussions. And I think many of these, you know, these are applied very unequally or disproportionately in the field of gender affirming surgery. You know, if you're going to, if we're going to start calling every, um, you know, revision knee or knee fusion or anybody, regret, you know, then, then we can start comparing rates of regret in, uh, in, you know, in, in the field. But I think, you know, I would say, let's get consistency with other, other fields of medicine and surgery, you know, other misinformation, that the field is somehow new. It's not new. You know, the modern, the, the, full history, surgical modification of the genitalia is thousands of years old. but you know, in the modern world, you know, 1930s uh, surgical procedures were were recorded, uh, you know, primarily in Europe. and and so you know the surgery in in the modern era has been done for hundreds of years. We use established surgical techniques as we've discussed that we use in in other fields. And so applying those techniques, in gender-affirming surgery doesn't suddenly make the same procedure experimental Hmm. Um, you know we talk about levels of evidence Um, you know that's that's real and and that's kind of a hot topic in the media now and that's you know very much a, a a half truth if you look at levels of evidence in much of plastic surgery it's level four evidence level five evidence so Uh, If you look at how clinical guidelines are established and the levels of evidence on which they're based, they're often based on level four or five evidence. Surgery as a field has certain limitations. You can't, you know, it would be unethical to randomize people away from medically necessary care. You know, there's no placebo in surgery. If you've had a modification of your body, you'll know you can't blind people to surgery. So the ability to conduct Randomized controlled trials is is limited and 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 that's true in many areas of of surgery. So when you hear these criticisms in the media, well, l- levels of evidence are low, well, they may be level four, level five, but the next sentence is and they're low in many other fields as well that we don't criticize people for. It's really insightful. Think, Thank you.
1: I
0: think it's a yeah, very thoughtful way of answering that question and and I think I agree that the consistency is the important part. and think the consistency of comparing this to other fields of surgery clearly makes sense. Um, so that was my whole point. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I feel w- w- you, you, you touched on it at the beginning a little bit because, you, you know, you've used the word modern. Surgery for this, but even just the evolution from when you started to where you are now has been just. I I mean, I would imagine that you have thought about writing a memoir. If you haven't, you should. Um,
0: Good, <laughs> I'd read it.
1: I mean, it's it's interesting stuff. I mean, I I think it would it it it's people, the things that you've been a part of and have seen are are. It's it's an evolution that people will talk about for a long time, and it's obviously not done. I'm just saying that it's it's I'm sure it's been crazy is maybe what I'm trying to say. (laughs) Is there something that stands out through the years that just when people I don't I'm sure you get asked a lot of media questions these days about like, what's the field like compared to what it was before? Is there stuff that stands out to you as being just kind of crazy that where it is right now compared to where it was?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, certainly there have been technical evolutions, you know, use of the robot and different uh, evolution flap techniques. Um, I think the most dramatic change for me is is the evolution of of, of the medical environment, the hospital environment, the healthcare environment. Yes. I mean, you know, 20-some years ago, people were concerned they would lose their job, and and so had to be very cautious of what was placed in a medical record, of what was submitted to insurance, uh, because people could be fired for that. Um, those were very delicate topics, you know, around, um, uh, you know, which fortunately for the most part those issues have have largely gone gone away not completely but but largely gone away um you know hospitals closing you know closing their doors in our face i mean that happened many you know many many times so the evolution i think of of just that uh, of the of, uh, you know of the of the hospitals of institutions of insurance companies um i think has been probably the most uh, dramatic difference uh, that that I would say I've, I've seen.
1: Yeah, I'm sure that Dr. Schechter, who graduated uh, fellowship and started his career, would would be very interested to hear about the medical director of gender affirmation surgery program at Rush, <laughs> uh, Dr. Schechter. I just would imagine that those two people didn't know that they were going to exist.
2: No, that's, I mean, I would, right. I, I would say that's a fair statement. I, did not foresee this. Um, um, I don't think anybody would have foreseen it. Um, And, you know, as I said, I have always felt we're simply providing a service to people. And, and, um, um, you know, 24 years ago, I wouldn't have anticipated that I'd be speaking to you about, about, you know, a field of of gender affirming surgery because there there simply was no field uh, of gender affirming surgery at the time. Not that we didn't do it, um, but but um, um, you know I think we've come a long way in terms of, of access to care, um, recognizing the importance and the medical necessity uh, of of care, um, creating an environment for people where they're comfortable um to the extent possible it's comfortable talking about difficult topics and 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 you know again it's our our goal our role to help people achieve comfort with themselves
1: well i yeah. can tell you that there's a couple of doctor friends and colleagues uh, here at, at at rush who are very happy that you are providing the the care and giving people access to to even just consultations to be able to get more information and come on our podcast and let people understand more. Cause uh, it's just, the more people can learn the better. I mean, that's the whole backbone of what we're trying to do here. The more information people have accurate, approachable, good information is always a good thing.
0: Yeah. My joke was going to be 24 years ago, you know, Dr. Schechter, you were saying that you couldn't foresee yourself being, um, you know, being where you are now because 24 years ago, there weren't podcasts.
2: No. (laughs) That's right. Yeah.
1: That's, no, that's, right. that's true. There it was were a tra- the radio
0: baby. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been, it, it's so illuminating, Jeremy. I don't know if you had any final questions for Dr. Schechter before we just asked kind of how folks can get yeah, in touch. No, with him. We usually ask about what resources our experts recommend for More information.
1: Yeah. I think I would just to build on what we were just talking about there. Is there <laughs> anything coming down the horizon or anything that you guys are working on that, you know, you see, coming forward with gender affirmation talked surgery about, talked about robots
0: using the robots.
2: <laughs> we we do so we work uh, we work with our urology and urogynecology and and colorectal colleagues. So um, you know we incorporate the robot into uh, a number of our surgical procedures, uh, both transmasculine and transfeminine procedures. So vaginoplasty, hysterectomy, um, and and so forth um you know my i would say uh and probably a topic for another another time my my area of interest over the last few years has been in uterine transplantation and that's a Mm. technology that i hope to someday be able to offer to uh to transgender women but but that's that's going to be a whole nother podcast in and of itself
1: wow you are schooled in this field man you're giving teasers (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> all right yes well done thank you very much yeah <laughs> now now we can ask resources julie all about yeah. the resources
0: yeah dr Schechter, do you have any specific do you have any resources that you would guide folks that are looking for more information about this topic too that are reputable that you maybe you've even written
2: <laughs> yeah so i you know i think for for people who people and professionals who are looking to access care you know the uh affirm, program at Rush. There's, um, you know, the Affirm, firm incorporates not only the surgical program, but also the community health program, uh, medicine, behavioral health. Um, and, and so that's a, a fairly broad and, uh, you know, large group of people. And, and we offer, and they offer a number of services. So primary care, uh, fertility and reproductive counseling, um primary care, gynecologic care, breast care, breast screening, um mental and behavioral health, and then of course, you know, the surgical surgical services. Um, and so that can be reached, you know, through affirm, uh, at, at Rush University. Um, and there's also a number of other um uh and, and and the affirm team can put people in touch with a variety of community resources whether it's support groups, um, social support, um, you know, various other assistance programs for people who are looking for it and, and for medical professionals, um, you know, who are looking to expand their knowledge in the area. Um, uh, one of the things that we have every Friday morning, we have a didactic conference, so we. Uh, have speakers in a variety of case conferences every uh, Friday morning uh, at 7 a.m uh, by Zoom. And so people are welcome uh, welcome to attend and to join that. And then uh, WPath, World Professional Association for Transgender Health is, is probably the largest inter- well, is the largest international organization dedicated and devoted to transgender health and transgender medicine. And there are any number of, of educational offerings uh, through that.
0: Ah, this has been such a lovely discussion and very very informative I think that really touches on the whole point of why we're doing all this Jeremy is yeah I learned a ton yeah it's great
1: I hope you have a clever ending because I certainly don't
0: (laughs) I sure yeah I've assembled someone I think it's just this kind of came up but everyone has the right to heal and everybody has the right to be informed so listen to your doctor friend (laughs)
1: The amazing music is credited to Skillcell with Pixabay licensure. The podcast is meant for educational and entertainment purposes only. The contents of this podcast should not be taken as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others. Please consult a medical professional for any medical issues that you may be having. The contents of this podcast are the opinions of the hosts only and do not reflect the opinions of their employers or affiliations. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast. Under no circumstances shall Dr. Julie Bruni or Dr. Jeremy Allen or any guests to the podcast be responsible for damages arising from use of the podcast.